the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Clarity Christian College, formerly known as Florida Bible College. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. I remember a number of years ago, I was uh, ministering in New York, and I took a group of men, a whole busload of men from upstate New York to Washington, D.C., and we got off the bus and we were at this huge stadium where the Washington Redskins play football. I never saw so many men only in one place, and 55,000 men were there, and yet it wasn't for a football game, it was for an event where men would come together and really wanting to learn scripture, to have fellowship with other men, and to really praise the Lord, because real men sing loudly. These are guys that really wanted to be men of integrity, men of integrity personally, men of integrity with their families, in the community, in their church, on their job, wherever they were, they were learning how to be great guys of men of integrity. Now, I didn't merely come only as a spectator. I was part of a stable of writers and speakers for Promise Keepers. But nonetheless, when I looked at that vast array of that football stadium, and seeing all these men together, I knew that not all those men knew Christ as Savior, that some of those men were on their early journey to find out who is the real Christ. But on the other hand, there were a lot of men who knew Christ, and yet there was a tremendous amount of tapestry of diversity with all of the guys that were there, all different colors, from all different parts of Northeast and maybe New England as well, all singing and hopefully singing to the same Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I looked over that crowd, I wondered where I might fit into that same kind of awesome power of shared belief. Well, the Bible talks a lot about unity, even in diversity. In fact, the verse was read to you a moment ago, and if you'd like to, you can follow along one more time in, Roman, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Again, it's implying that just like our body has a lot of different members in it, we're still connected to one body. And like the body of Christ when he was on this earth, he too had arms and legs and eyes and mouth and nose, etc. But when he left this earth, he left his body here, not his physical body, but the body called the church. And we now become his arms, his legs, his hands, his eyes, but yet he still remains the head of the church. But we're part of his body. And so this explains that even my own body, I have different responsibilities. My hand shakes other people's hand. I don't say, hey, how you doing? And I stick out my foot. All right? It has different responsibilities, different privileges, different works that it does. And it's all part of working together as one big family. Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 5 says this, For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, yet individually members one of another. That means that even in a great body of people, that we all have our individuality, we're still all part of one great big family. Maybe it'd be good for me to give you an illustration at this point in our marriage. Now, my wife and I, uh, we're part of the human race. So we're humans. Most of the time, I'm human. She's always human. At the same time in our relationship, we have at the very center of it a core belief. 
We believe the Bible. We believe Jesus is God. We believe God is God. The Holy Spirit is God. We believe salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. We have those basic things that are together. But there are differences. Obviously, there's the anatomical differences between Carol and me. But there's also a lot of other differences because opposites attract and then they attack and then they learn to attach. Well, praise the Lord, we're way beyond now our attacking years and we've learned to attach. But there's a lot of differences between Carol and me and sometimes at the end of a busy day we would look at our lives and say probably the only thing we have in common is our faith in Christ. For example, Carol likes long humorous stories when she loves to tell stories and if you've been with her she loves to tell stories. At the drop of a hat she can remember something that's happened and spin it into something that's exciting. For me, just give me the facts, bottom line. Now Carol, she likes things like collard greens and fried okra. Me, I like God's food, pizza. All right. There's a lot of differences between Carol and me. Another difference that we have is the fact that Carol likes such neat things as garage sales and flea markets and craft fairs. Me, I like libraries, old cemeteries, and surfing. And so we have different likes. In fact, a number of years ago, Carol and I went on a one-month trip to vis visit our missionaries that were involved in Eastern Europe. In fact, we arrived in Albania just months after Americans were allowed to come in when communism fell, slept in bombed-out buildings, and met with people that were in bondage for so many decades that didn't even know Christ. But when we were on that trip, we decided that we would write a journal. Carol would keep her journal, I would write my journal, at the end of the trip, we then had our journals published so that people could read them. And what we did is we recorded what God was doing in our life and what we observed during our one-month trip in Eastern Europe. Now, people love to read Carol's day, but they had a hard time getting through my day because Carol writes like Chuck Swindoll and Max Licato, and I tend to write like, I guess, John MacArthur. Nothing against John, but, you know, more technical in my writing. Carol writes about all the different flowers she saw. And I want to write about how depraved these people were. You know, people don't like reading those kinds of things. So there's a lot of differences. But then as I look over the church, I think there are a lot of differences too. Now look at our church. Look around at one another for just a moment. Look at each other. I know there's a lot of funny people here, but at the same time, there's a lot of different kind of people. It shows that God has a sense of humor. Now for some of you that are our guests here, here's some things that you right away know. You know that we have a group of Asians in our church. You can see some Filipinos in our church. You can see some mainland people. You can see some Hawaiians in our church. So we have some different ethnic backgrounds. We also have some people that are involved in military in our church. We have others that are involved in education. We have a lawyer in our church. We have a doctor in our church. We have people that are those that just deliver pizzas to those that have all different kinds of jobs. We have those that are still haven't trusted Christ as Savior yet, but they're weekly here on their journey to find God. And then we have others that have an earned doctorate degree in theology, so to speak, in the Bible. And so we have all different kinds of people. We have young people here. We have mature people here, you know. We have all kinds of people here. And yet, what brings us together is not because we have an ethnic group here or because we're all of one profession we're here because the foundation of our belief system happens to be that we believe the Bible. We believe that God is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. We believe that going to heaven is by faith alone. And so we are building our relationships on a solid rock of that which is stable, that will never change, which will be God's word. And so even in the midst of diversity, and again, there are diversities here. We have people that are very much involved in we might call the public school system, teaching it, have their kids in it, are passionate about it. We have those that are involved in Christian school education. Graduates of Christian schools on the island have their kids in Christian schools. We have those that are homeschooled. But why do we see these different groups, although they have a different take on how to educate their children, why do they work so well together? It's because first they have a belief system that they believe is higher merely than just how they're educating their kids. 
And also because they really love one another and will give God the time to work in that other person's life to help that person become more like the Lord. And that's really how the body of Christ should work. That's how it's intended to work. That's the way God wants it to work. Well, one of the questions that I was asked in this uh, question you would want to ask God was this. What does the Bible have to say about biblical unity? That was a big question. Another man heard me say here in our faith family that there are five hills that I'll die on. And I don't exactly remember when I shared that, but I believe I would say that because there are five hills that I would die on, but I don't know if they'd be the only hills I would die on, but they're my foundational hills. I also recall that when Promise Keepers was embroiled in a doctrinal issue, that they asked a couple of us to help rewrite their doctrinal statement because it was pretty sloppy at the time. So I was asked to put together an annotated bibliography to find out how they could restructure their their doctrinal statement because they had all different kinds of people that were now being promoted to levels of leadership that were Mormons and Catholics and all the rest. And I was so humbled to be asked because I'm such a biblical, I'm not saying scholar, conservative, that I was allowed to put this together. And so through that material, God really shaped how I would look at biblical unity in the midst of so many different denominations and religions and, and cults and all the rest. And I believe that I have a sense of confidence in what I'm about to teach you over the next few weeks and a few months. And so you're going to hear me say the word doctrine because I believe doctrine is important. But for some of you that are new in this journey, when you hear doctrine, it's a word that sounds dusty and dry and intimidating and difficult that you can't really grab a hold of this or wrap your arms around it. In fact, it sounds like doctrine. I just want to know, am I going to have a job next week when they're laying people off and you want to talk about doctrine? Well, I would like you to know that doctrine is important. To believe, of course, and you need to know what to believe and why to believe it, but it's put there so that you will know how to practice the doctrine that God has for us. So don't look at it as something that's dusty and dry. Look at it as simply a teaching. I'm going to teach you the teachings of Scripture. So it's going to be just taking God's Word on a level that I hope you'll understand. It has been my prayer that I would be able to stimulate those of you that have been saved a long time that are drilling deep into God's Word and doctrine. At the same time, because we also love those that are so brand new in this, that I would also follow my mantra of, I want to make it clear to those that are so new at this and bring us together on this journey. Well, now that we live on an island that you well know is permeated by the military, I think it might be good for me to begin our study by just alluding to some issues that goes on in the military. I think it's important because whether you're military or not, we do live in a community that has military presence. And when there's a military issue or a soldier or military personnel is wounded, injured, or, or killed, and that family is hurting, it helps us to know as a Christian what we can do to those people that are watching their loved ones go off to war or come back from war different than when they left. And if you look at this whole aspect of war, and you talk to these military personnel, war is, well, frankly, as one person said, war is hell. But in reality, I think if there was the worst part of war, other than maybe being tortured by the enemy... It's probably experiencing what is known as friendly fire. It's when you suffer injury or death based upon your own soldiers, your own military, perhaps killing you. There was an article that was written in 1991 in Christian Herald by Jairus Bregan. And I'd like to just summarize it by this. On January 29, 1991, in Saudi Arabia, Lance Corporal Ron Tully Tull was part of an eight-man LAV vehicle serving in Delta Company. An Iraqi tank just exploded, and the LAV was so close that the heat from the LAV exhaust redirected 
a heat-seeking missile fired by an Air Force A-10 fighter meant for the tank. When Tully woke up in the hospital, he was then told that seven of his men had died and he was the only one that survived. Now they would call that friendly fire. For some of you that's not a new term, you hear that quite frequently, not frequently, but you hear it occasionally about friendly fire. It sounds so nice, friendly fire. As I did a study on that term, friendly fire, the official term is called fratricide. And that's when there's the killing of a brother or a sister or someone so close to one another. Another word is called homicide, and that's the killing of one's friend. Another friend of mine that served in Promise Keeper was Chuck Stecker. He was a retired Army, Army lieutenant colonel. And what he did is he explained to all of us that did not know about military and friendly fire what goes on when a unit experiences friendly fire. Now, I would like you to stay with me because I'm building a case in this entire message. But listen to what he had to say. This is what friendly fire causes. There, there's a hesitation to do what they call limited visibility operations. In other words, since we really can't see, someone can't see us and we might get shot. They've experienced friendly fire, so they hesitate. The unit's leadership loses confidence because they're afraid to lead their men out that put them in exposure of more friendly fire. It causes the leader themselves then to have self-doubt and his ability to lead because he's thinking, maybe I'll lead him again into something like this. Then there's an over-supervision of units. There's a loss of initiative. In battle, there's a loss of aggressiveness. Operations are disrupted. There's not that same amount of combat power when they go into combat. And generally, there's a cohesion and morale degradation that just goes right down the tank. Now, if you were in a unit, and now you're thinking that you've experienced friendly fire, what goes on in your mind? Here's what a survivor might think. Why did my friend have to die from one of my own guys? Why am I alive and why did I survive? What if I get shot from behind? Why am I even here? Which one of you might take a shot at me? Well, I've read some material and I've talked to some of my military buddies and and here's what, with all the money that's spent on trying to figure out, is it technical, is it relational, what is the issue of all this friendly fire? They came up with some possible solutions to prevent friendly fire. I'd like to give these to you, and I'm going to show you how this might bring it into Christians in their war, even amongst other Christians. Let's look at it here. It's called increased training. Sometimes it would help if our people would understand what our uniforms look like, what the, uniform, the enemy uniforms would look like. I remember talking to some of those much older men who fought in World War II that were supposed to shoot down enemy planes. They were given pictures of what enemy planes looked like as flashcards so they wouldn't be shooting down because they didn't have the communication and the technology that we have today. And they'd be looking at those flashcards as the planes would be flying because our planes and their planes would all be up there to make sure they wouldn't shoot down one of our own. So increased training. Conditioning. Sometimes because they're not properly conditioned through fatigue, mentally, emotionally, physically, they then start losing control, which brings us to number three, discipline. They need to work more on discipline. That's why you see so much done in basic training to discipline these men that in the midst of a firefight when they're screaming and yelling and guns going off and all that's happening around them, that they're able to keep their wits about them so they don't just go off shooting anybody and anything that moves. And then finally what's important as they believed that it was important to keep the troops informed with accurate and timely information, mostly coming from the leadership down, but also from those that are ops in the field to give that information upward to those that are in leadership. 
And so they said if we worked on these four areas, we might be able to reduce or eliminate most of what's going on as friendly fire. Well, after I went through that material, I can easily see how it's happening in the church. So where else does friendly fire occur? Well, it happens in the church. Tragically, friendly fire is happening all over the world today. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if some of you today are still wearing the emotional and the mental thoughts of experiencing friendly fire to yourself, to a family member, to a dear friend, or to you when you're involved in some church somewhere. And so it happens. And so what are the questions that we might ask when we experience friendly fire in a church setting, in church, in a ministry? Here are the questions that go through my mind. And by the way, let me just lovingly speak to those that are pastors that are out here, or those that are listening on the radio. I don't think there's ever been a time or there's ever been a pastor who has not experienced friendly fire. I remember talking to Chuck Swindoll when he visited Florida Bible College when I was there. And he called his first ministry the Siberian experience when he was in New Hampshire, New England area because of the friendly fire there. And here's what goes on in our minds when you're experiencing friendly fire in church. Here it is. Number one is, who's on my side? Unfortunately, we draw too many sides. Who's my enemy? Why am I here? Why not go somewhere else? Who can I trust? Why is this fight really so important anyway? And then is my friend's grenade going to land in my foxhole? The one that I've been trusting turn against me as well? Now, they really think that friendly fire occurs because of technical error and because of human error. And I imagine there can be some technical error, but even some technical error happens because a human was wrong in using technology. How many of you, on a more humorous note, it's still painful, you've worked on a document and you hit your button to send, but instead of hitting that button, it slid down and it hit delete and you lost that document for a moment. How many has that happened to you? And of course, we all know that was a technical problem, right? You know, no, it was a human problem. But I don't care whether it's technical or not, when it's a human issue, friendly fire still hurts and it's devastating, especially in the church of God and for the work of the kingdom of God, and it happens all the time. And unfortunately, there still is a small group when a good soldier turns bad. And we've read about some of those that actually purposely, knowingly went after their own troops, not accidentally. And I think it's devastating in a church when a person in the church knows that what they're saying and doing underground, behind, shooting friendly fire, and they know that they're doing it. And how it grieves the body of Christ and grieves the Lord more when you see friendly fire occurring by one good Christian gone bad that just had a bad hair day, lost it all, allowed the flesh to take over. So why do people fight? Well, I really try to analyze that and I think the Bible has some reasons and maybe here's one. I don't know if this will help you or not, but it sure makes me understand how serious this is. Let me take you back to those so-called thrilling years of yesteryear thrilling days of yesteryear, back in the Old West. Well, you remember those old forts they would have? And inside the fort, U.S. Cavalry Fort, there'd be some cavalry officers inside. And their job was to protect the settlers from maybe any of the enemies of the wilderness that would come out. And so you could see they're all ready to go. But let me take you to another fort just down the road over the next hill. And that fort isn't quite as prepared properly. What they're intended to do is to watch out for the enemies of the wilderness, but they're not like that. Instead, what they're doing is concentrating on one another. And all of a sudden, you see a corporal shoot a sergeant. And then you see a private shoot a major. And the guns are going off, and they're kind of basically just shooting one another. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, wait, these guys are put there to protect the settlers against the enemies of the wilderness. But what are they doing? They're turning their own guns and knives on each other. And here's what you would say when you hear a story like that. You'd say, that is absolutely absurd. 
And dear ones, that's what I'd like to tell you. Here we are as blood-bought, born-again believers in a bigger body of Christ. We find ourselves shooting at other believers. It's like we're shooting at one another in the same safe fort that we all should be in. And we need to be careful of this. Now let me just pause and step away from my message for a second, especially for you guests. Some of you that are coming, you're wondering, is there a problem in this church? Is Stan speaking to an issue in this church? I'm going to tell you that there will always be people that might paint outside the lines occasionally and do some things. There's always going to be that in any family. But I can tell you that we truly are a safe and healthy family here. That there is not an underground thing going. There's not splits going on. There's not groups that are meeting, factions that are happening. There's harmony on the deacon board, harmony with the pastors, harmony with all of our people. Most, you know, in certain levels of it. We're in the unity room. Some more centered, some a little bit further out, but we're in the unity room. But at the same time, it's always healthy for a pastor to warn as well as to teach. So here I'm not rebuking. I'm just making sure that we're on the same page together. So as absurd as that illustration goes, I have to ask the next question. What brings people together? Because if I want to know what's dividing, what brings people together? Well, I think here's the answer. What draws people together? If you look throughout history, you're going to find that people will come together to either, here it is, defend or further a cause. Now go down memory lane. Those that, are the, those that are the more fighters, those that are wanting to get in out there, they want to defend a cause or they want to further a cause. Now I'm not going to illustrate that because there's too many and you know them yourself. But again, if I look now at Christianity, the greatest cause for believers in Christ to defend and further in unity, here it is, is the kingdom of God. What should draw us together is the furtherance of the building of the kingdom of God. Now, when I talk about kingdom of God, I don't want you to think merely about a place like the magic kingdom in Southern California or, or Disney World. But when you think about that, though, it's the kingdom, and it's not that little building you walk through before you get to all the rides. When you talk about the magic kingdom, it's not just the pl- happiest place on earth. It's one thing. It's the whole experience about the mouse. And for us, folks... When we talk about the kingdom of God, it is everything that is biblically accurate about who God is and how he is king of kings and lord of lords. And we are wanting the whole world to know this. We want everybody to put under this to submit themselves to God in his kingdom. And that's what we defend. And that's what we're trying to further. And that's what God really wants us to do. Now watch what I'm about to say. The best way to do that is when you and I have a basis to do this on what is known as the faith. And the faith needs to be our faith. So we need to know the faith academically, what it is, be taught it, make sure it's right. And then we have to, and here's the title, embrace that faith. It has to be our faith. And once we do that, then we'll know what we're going to defend and further. So having sound doctrine, it unites as well as divides. But you have to have sound doctrine. You have to have a a basis to do this. Now, if you don't mind, I want to take you back briefly in some church history. I'll open this up at another message. Back when the Bible was finished, Jesus Christ left. The church began, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. There was a whole body of truth that was left for us. The apostles were the big ones that were kind of discipling and planning churches and the message was going out. Very soon after that, the church was hit with some division. There was some issues, some problems, some questions, some false doctrine. So a group of people who were specifically taught by the apostles came together 
And they then took scripture and what the apostles said and they wrote what is commonly known that most of you have heard of and if you haven't you should have. It's called the Apostles' Creed. And so they tried to reduce what scripture had to say to what we might use the phrase fundamentals. I'll give that to you in another message at another point. Well, that kind of arrested the issue for a while. About two centuries later, two and a half centuries later, there was another false teaching that was just going throughout the church where people now were taking passages of Scripture, the teachings of the apostles out of context, taking other teachings, putting it all together, and teaching mixed truth or mixed air as truth. Well, that was not right. So then another group of people, about a hundred scholars, got together. Theologians and pastors and lay people came together at a place called Nicaea. And they went over Scripture carefully. They talked about it. They went back to the writings, Old Testament, New Testament, all that they had available to them. They went back over the Apostles' Creed and they came up with what is known as the Nicene Creed. So what they have done is one more time substantiated a set of doctrine that would be sound doctrine of a basis for us to believe. Well, that worked for a long time and seemed like a lot of people didn't get together much after that to try to figure out what would be sound doctrine until 1700 years later, at the end of the 18th century. Again, there was a conflagration of doctrines that were going out. There was evangelism going on in the early 1800s, D.L. Moody, etc. A lot of things were happening. So people were grabbing a little bit of this teaching, a little bit of that teaching, throwing it all together in one big doctrinal stew pot. So then they grabbed another group of leaders together that were scholars in the Word, that were fundamental in the beliefs of the Bible, and they took the Bible, they took the Apostles' Creed, they took the Nicene Creed, This is Joe Pons, and I want to thank you for listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Clarity Christian College. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It's the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. That's makeitclear.org. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please email us at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. That's tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.